Good morning, and thanks for tuning in to worship with More Memorial United Methodist Church this morning. I'm excited to share with you that beginning this week, we have started a drive-in service at 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings that we're hosting in the parking lot of Mission Hope. So if you head north uh, from Winona on Highway 51, Mission Hope is just to the right, uh, right before you get to Highway 82. And we'll be uh, worshiping in the parking lot there for at least the next three weeks. We'll be having an in-person gathering on our campus for Ash Wednesday. That's on February 17th. And we are hoping to be back in our sanctuary for Sunday morning worship the following Sunday on February 21st. We're monitoring case counts. We're doing our best to keep everybody safe and to to manage risk well. But we're hoping that uh, cases will uh, be in a place that it will allow us to gather safely in person at that point. We'll be in communication with you about that. Uh, If you feel safer worshiping at home, we'll continue to provide worship for you on the radio and on Facebook and YouTube and all of the other ways that you may have been accessing our worship service throughout the pandemic. If we can serve you in any way this week, if we can pray for you, we hope that you'll reach out to us in the church office and let us know how we can be serving you or loving you well as a church. Uh, If you have questions about the gospel, if you have questions about following Jesus uh, and would like to take a next step in that way, we would love to hear from you this week. If you have questions about our church and its ministries, we would love to hear from you. If you'd like to give to support our ministries, you can do that on our website at morememorialumc.com or you can mail a check to P.O. Box 467 right here in Winona. Thank you for listening this morning. We pray that the sermon is a blessing to you and that it draws you near to Jesus and equips you uh, to love your neighbor. We pray this in his name. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the gift of your word. And even more than that, we give you thanks for the love of your son, Jesus, who has shown us how to love by offering his life as a ransom for many. We pray, O Lord, that your word would teach us how to love today, that it would invite us into lives that are characterized by love, that builds up our neighbors, particularly our brothers and sisters in Christ. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Our scripture reading today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll read verses 1 through 13. Now concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge. But anyone who loves God is known by him. Hence, as to to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists and that there is is no God but one. Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. It is not everyone, however, who has this knowledge. 
Since some have become so accustomed to idols until now, they still think of the food they eat as food offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if others see you, you who possess knowledge, eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So by your knowledge, those weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed. But when you thus sin against members of your family and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause of their falling, I will never eat meat, so that I may not cause one of them to fall. The word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You pray with me and for me now. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts find acceptance in your sight, Almighty Father. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. No one is dumber than the person who doesn't know what you just learned. This is a lesson my friend Michael Lindsay taught me about a year ago when we were on a road trip back before the pandemic. It's a fascinating concept, mostly because it's true. I remember living this way, inclined towards my parents as a kid. I'd come home from school after a history lesson, and I'd ask them, do you know who the 13th president of the United States is? And they wouldn't know it was Millard Fillmore, and I'd think, I must be smarter than my parents. But now here I am telling you who the 13th president of the United States is, only because I googled it, not because I remember anymore. If you start paying attention, you'll see this happening everywhere. In fact, just the sheer satisfaction in knowing something that others don't know is what drives a whole lot of the partisan politics that we see playing out, the conflict and misinformation that's all over the internet and throughout our world. Someone read something on the internet that they didn't know They don't bother to figure out if it's true or not, and they share it with others because they think it's interesting. What's really fascinating about this sentence, that no one's dumber than the one who doesn't know what you just learned, is that when you realize that people are doing this, as you pay attention, you're going to think about that quotation. And then, as you think about that quotation, you're going to think about how dumb those people are for doing what they don't realize they're doing. But you do, because you know that no one is dumber than the one who doesn't know what you just learned about. And then you realize that you're thinking that they're dumb, because they don't know that quotation. It really works on you. Back in 2002, which at this point might as well be ancient history, the Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, speaking about uh, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, said something that was widely mocked at the time, but its wisdom has been more and more accepted since then. He said this, Reports that say that something hasn't happened are always interesting to me, because as we know, there are known knowns, 
There are things we know we know. We also know that there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know that there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. And if one looks throughout history, the history of our country and other free countries, it is the latter category that tends to be the most difficult at times. The unknown unknowns. He says there are known knowns, there are known unknowns, and there are unknown unknowns. As he says it, what he's saying is that there are things that we simply know. And there are things that we know about, and we know that there's information beyond that that we don't know anything about, and we kind of have an idea of what's going on with that. But then there are things that we aren't paying attention to at all. The unknown unknowns, and they're beyond us, and they're the things that reach out and grab us most of the time. There's a little bit of wisdom there, even if it's a little bit confusing, if the quotation is a little bit convoluted. There are things that we do not know we don't know. And Paul says that if we walk around thinking that we know something, we don't really know anything that actually matters. Because knowledge puffs up and love builds up. Humans love to know things. We might not like learning things, but we love to know things. It's why we use phrases like common sense. It's not that everyone has common sense. It's that we don't remember learning it and we judge other people for not having it. We like to know things. There are school posters up in every school, at least when I was growing up, that said knowledge is power. And it's true. Knowledge can keep you safe for things that you wouldn't be able to figure out on your own. Knowledge can help you overcome significant challenges. Knowledge can help you win trivial pursuit or jeopardy. But as the saying goes, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. We're generally inclined to assume that we know more than we actually know. In fact, we're never more confident about how much we know than when we know just a little bit about a subject. And if you don't believe me, Google the Dunning-Kruger effect before you take your Sunday afternoon nap. We are more confident in what we know when we don't know much than when we know a lot. And hopefully knowing all of that puts us in a position to hear Paul say clearly, knowledge puffs up and love builds up. And anyone who thinks they know something doesn't know anything at all, but anyone who loves God is known by God. It's not ultimately what we know, but who knows us that matters. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. This This passage comes a whole five chapters before Paul goes on his beautiful, poetic description of what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not insist on its own way. It is not envious or jealous or rude. It is not proud. It does not insist on its own way. But right here, he's already giving us a sense of the particular embodied content of love. Love is wrapped up in what they eat in Corinth. 
Corinth is at a strategic place in the middle of Greece. It's at the isthmus, the little sliver of land that connects the Peloponnesian Peninsula to the west to the mainland of Greece where Athens is and that goes on up through around the Mediterranean. And Corinth, because of its location there and all the trade that happens there, is kind of like the Las Vegas of the ancient world. It's a city where people go particularly for pleasure industries But different than Las Vegas, it has a really strong religious bent to all of this stuff that people do. There are temples and idols to temples and altars to pagan gods everywhere. So much so that it's hard to find meat in ancient Corinth that hasn't been sacrificed to this god or to that god. Sacrifices are happening all the time, and that's the meat that ends up in the marketplace. So this presents a question for Christians. Christians who've accepted Jesus as their Lord, who've devoted their life entirely to Him, who've left behind these ancient pagan rituals and religions and have moved on to following after Jesus. And for some of them, they say, we've got to leave all of that entirely behind. We can't let any of that mix itself in with the new life that we've found in Christ. And others, others say, well, now that we know the truth, those idols aren't real. Those gods aren't real. There's nothing substantial to any of these things that are being offered. So there's nothing wrong with the meat because those gods can't do anything anyway. And so for some people, there's no problem in eating the meat. But for other people, simply eating the meat draws them back in to these pagan rituals and and worship of these pagan gods in a way that, that draws them away from Jesus and back towards their old habits. Could they eat meat sacrificed to idols? Paul says, you can. Those of you who are making that theological argument are right. The gods aren't real. Your knowledge is correct. There's no problem with the intel you have on whether or not you can eat meat sacrificed to idols. In a vacuum, it's fine. But not everyone has your understanding, he says. Not everyone has your knowledge. And some people, when they eat this meat that's been sacrificed to idols, it brings them back into the whole cultic practice. It transports them back into the way that it was, like giving an alcoholic who is sober a drink. And it violates their conscience and pulls them away from Jesus. So it's not just a matter of whether or not you're right in principle. You've got to care about your neighbor's conscience. Because if they see you eating meat in a temple to a false god, they might think it's okay for them too. And they might get sucked back into all of their old ways of being, such that your freedom, your liberty, becomes the cause of your brother's destruction. Your brother, your sister, for whom Jesus died. And that's not only a sin against your family. It's a sin against Christ himself. So Paul says, if it means I never get to eat meat again, if I never let delicious steak touch my mouth ever again, I will do that for the sake of my brother's soul. 
That's what love looks like. As Paul communicates to us here, he's trying to let us know that we can have all of our theology right. We can answer every question in the catechism correctly, and we can still miss the boat. This is a real danger for Christians, especially for Protestant Christians who've built our faith around the idea that we are saved by Christ alone, through faith alone, according to His grace alone. So we believe, we know, that if we believe in Jesus, He will save us. So we begin to think that if we can just get our beliefs right, that's all that matters. If we can just articulate our faith clearly enough, if we can have enough biblical and theological knowledge, that's really all that matters. And there was a whole group of early Christians that thought not exactly this way, but similarly. They're called the Gnostics. Gnostic just means a knower. And they're called this because they thought the disciples received some special saving knowledge from Jesus, that you had to have that special knowledge to be saved. It was all about what you knew, not about how you lived or behaved, but about what you knew that other people might not know that could save you. And this is a real danger for us too, to think that if we just know enough, that if we can just get all of the things exactly right, if we can buffet up our understanding enough that we can answer all the questions that anybody might ask us about Jesus Christ, our Lord, will be fine. And Paul says, no, that's not the case. In fact, he says, you might have to give up genuinely good things, things that you have every right to do in the name of love, because your knowledge might puff you up. Your knowledge might make you proud, but love will always build up. It will always build up your brothers and sisters. We really like to know things. We like to have knowledge. And sometimes we even convince ourselves that the right knowledge, that believing the right things is all we need to worry about. And knowledge does matter. We really like to know things. We like to have knowledge. We like to build it up. We like to disperse that knowledge in ways that make us feel important. And knowledge really does matter. I don't want you to hear me saying that we should not study Scripture and we should not love God with our mind. The greatest commandment that Jesus gives is to love God with your heart and your soul and your strength and your mind. Loving God with our mind really matters, and we should absolutely invest in that. But we love God. It's not just that we need to know about Him. And we love our neighbor. Knowledge does not in itself cure every ill. This is the fundamental lie that the Western world has been living with for the last 300 years. That if we could just understand everything perfectly, everyone will behave better. If you just give them the right information, everything will be fine. But Paul knew 2,000 years ago that knowledge puffs up and love builds up. Knowledge will not on its own save us. It might, in fact, make us proud. And it might make us feel like we've got it all together, but what's in our heart matters to our neighbor. 
how we live in an orientation of love towards our neighbor matters fundamentally to Paul even more than what we know. This is why how we think about discipleship really matters as a church. What does it look like for us to grow as Christians? What does it look like for us to live as faithful followers of Jesus? We've got to be really intentional. For decades, we've focused on building up our knowledge, building up the knowledge base of Christians. In Sunday school and in Bible studies, we have invested in our minds. And some of us know a whole lot about God. And that does transform us. That does not prevent us from growing. But if it stops at our head and it doesn't penetrate down into our heart and affect our lives such that we can love and care for our brothers and sisters in Christ, such that we're oriented to act entirely out of love for our neighbor, it's all just blowing us up, puffing us up with empty air, with no substance, and not building up the church. Knowledge alone doesn't do much except puff us up and make us self-righteous such that we could find ourselves chowing down on a bunch of delicious meat in a temple to another God and we could be right that there's nothing fundamentally wrong with that except that it serves as an invitation to our brothers or our sisters to jump back into the whole cultic practice that they had left behind. We might be able to defend our choice on its own merits, but we might not have been formed in love. And training in love is a different animal altogether. We can't learn to love just by reading a few books or even by simply talking about Scripture. Love is a habit, a virtue formed by habit, of a disposition oriented towards others and more concerned about their needs than our own. Training in love might mean giving up things that we really love, that we really have the freedom to do otherwise. Training in love might demand something of us that makes us uncomfortable or that deprives us of pleasure. For some people, partisan politics has become an idol, And even if you enjoy the theory of it all and you can talk about it from a healthy distance, you might have to give up talking about it with some friends because it is pulling them away from Jesus. For some people, college sports have become an idol. And though you might be able to enjoy college sports in a healthy way, you might have to pull back from those things so that you don't draw other people into something that pulls them away from Jesus. For some people, their investments have become an idol. And your constant ramblings about the stock market only encourage to invest more and more of their attention in their financial investments and less in their community. If the human heart really is an idol factory, and I believe it is, it's not just the meat sacrificed to idols that matters. It's that all of our behavior, every bit of it, when we confess Jesus as Lord, puts us under his standard of righteousness. And his standard of righteousness is that we be made perfect in love, that we love our neighbors, that we love our brothers and sisters perfectly in such a way that we and they can follow Jesus with a single-minded devotion. 
Following Jesus might mean laying aside aspects of your heritage. It might mean giving up some things that you genuinely love. Because we can't love those things more than we love our brothers and sisters where those things have become idols for us too. Paul's not trying to make us prudent. He's not encouraging us to add more rules. He's not trying to make the life of a Christian more complicated. He's not telling people that they can never eat meat. He's saying if a friend's soul is at stake, he will never eat meat again. As a matter of basic fact, he says, Christians have the freedom to do nearly anything as long as it's not pulling them away from their relationship with God. But knowing that isn't enough because we can't just be concerned about ourselves anymore. We've got to love our neighbors too. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. May we, by the power of God, become more and more those capable of love. Will you pray with me? Lord, we confess to you that sometimes we have been so focused on gaining knowledge that we've lost sight of your love. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would open our eyes to the ways that our behaviors invite others to pursue things that cannot satisfy them instead of you. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would be willing to set aside any convenience or pleasure in the name of the gospel for the sake of the souls of those whom you have died for. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would motivate us above all else to invest in the spiritual growth of our brothers and sisters, that they might be presented before you blameless and holy as a living sacrifice. This is our prayer for ourselves. This is our prayer for the whole church. This is our prayer for the whole world. We pray that by your Spirit you would make it so through us and through the ministry that you have called us to be about. Teach us to love even as Jesus loved, by dying for his enemies. Amen.